Welcome back, my Finn friends. If you're new here, I'm Nika Farb, your host, and I'm here to help you unlock the doors to financial independence or Finn dependence. This is the start of season five of the Miss Finn Dependent podcast, and I want to start off the year a little differently. The season's going to be packed with content. New full episodes are going to be released every Wednesday, and I'm doing a mini episode, an AMA coming every Monday as well. I get a ton of DMs, comments, whether it's on TikTok, Instagram, emails, with you guys asking me different kinds of personal finance questions, entrepreneurship questions, even mindset-related questions. So I'm going to answer all of them once a week in a mini Q&A-style episode where I approach your questions from an educational standpoint and point you in the right direction. Bit of a life update. I've been on a roll with fitness, with diet, with activity, and building discipline. I took a couple months off to reset after season four because it's been so hectic here on my end. And I just got back from a big ski trip in France. If you're curious, check out my TikTok vlogs if you want to see what it was like. Skiing in France, by the way, doesn't compare to skiing in North America. Like the runs are wider. There's way more terrain, a ton more bluebird days. And this year, yeah, they've had a bad year in terms of snow. But if you go to the high altitude resorts like Val Torrens, you'll have an amazing time. And if you're flying from the East Coast to ski out West, usually like if you're flying from Toronto to Whistler, it's actually cheaper for you to go to France than it is to go to Whistler. I did the math. I sat down, I did the math, and then it went viral on TikTok because apparently people have very polarizing opinions when it comes to this. But TLDR, I'm Team France all the way. Coming back from a trip and diving back into routine is always a priority for me, but oddly enough, this time, it's been a much smoother transition. Part of it is because it's early February and... I don't know if anybody else feels like this in January when they set their New Year's resolutions, but they set these goals and then it takes them a couple weeks to really get back into the swing of things. And it turns out that's actually normal, especially because we come off this period right around Christmas and the holidays that are loaded with social interaction, poor eating choices, lots of booze, and our bodies and minds become overstimulated. I listened to this really, really interesting podcast it's called You're Not So Smart, and the episode is on procrastination. I'll link it in the show notes. To give you guys a little TLDR, too long, didn't read or didn't listen in this case, they talk about how February is a time where we start to wonder, like, am I actually going to live through and follow through with my New Year's resolutions? And that's when procrastination becomes a real centerpiece in our lives. So anyways, they interview this author, Britt Frank, and she wrote The Science of Stuck. And she says, procrastination is not a character flaw, nor is it a sign of weakness, nor a sign of laziness. Procrastination is an indicator that the internal consent has not been given. When our inner parts are distressed, afraid, sad, angry, grief-stricken, or anxious, it's important to listen to their concerns and not to shame them or coerce them into action. So procrastination is a biological response that your nervous system is deregulated and your body's going into a freeze response or a fight or flight response. And I'm bringing this up because I'm going to be talking about goal setting a little bit and what my financial goals are in this episode, how I'm working towards them. So I want you to know that if you are procrastinating, and I do this too, it's because there's something going on with your nervous system and you need to work through that. So I did some reflecting and I tried to understand in moments where I don't feel like doing the thing that I need to do. How do I actually get myself to do the thing when I don't feel like it? So one thing that resonated, that might resonate with you guys, is the topic of motivation. 
Motivation is a consequence of emotional regulation, not the antecedent. You're never always going to be motivated, so you can't trust motivation to be your driving force. First, you need to be emotionally regulated, and then you get a spark in motivation. So if you don't feel motivated, don't beat yourself up. You probably just need to sit with yourself and try to assess your emotional state and figure out what's really going on inside. And bottom line, if you don't feel like doing something, don't wait until you're motivated to take action. Find a way to get to a micro yes. Because those micro yeses, they build up, and then you get a spark in motivation, and then you start to get on a roll, and you keep going. Alrighty, let's start off this week's episode, my financial independence plan. And this one's going to be very different from anything, frankly, anything I've done in the past. I'm going to get real vulnerable here. I'm going to tell you guys my story, my plan, my actual goals and things that I want to achieve and how I'm working towards them. And this blueprint that I've built for myself that I'm going to share with you guys. It's not going to be an episode that's filled with definitions or hardcore knowledge based. It's just pretty much going to be me riffing off of what my plan is for the future and then reflecting on choices and decisions that I've made. So here's the mission, the goal, if you will. I want to be work optional as early as possible. I currently have a full-time job. I work in tech sales. I like my job. I work with cool people. I'm motivated financially. And the majority of the income that I make is actually through commission and bonuses. And I'll talk about the importance of income in a little bit. But bottom line, I don't know how much longer I'm going to enjoy working for. And after I have kids, if you remember, I want to have a big family, like massive family. So I want to spend as much time with them as possible. And I want to watch them grow. And I want to be that mom that packs her kids' lunches, who drops them off at soccer games and dance classes and doesn't miss dance recitals because she has to work. I want to be able to escape Canadian winters when I want. I want to be able to live in a place like Costa Rica or like Florida for six months at a time. Maybe even declare non-residency for tax purposes and live in the Cayman Islands for seven months of the year, which is a lot of tax benefits. But ultimately, I want to live a non-traditional life. And I had this very vivid realization of this when I was working my first full-time job. I was fresh out of university, living at home as a young adult, commuting for 50, as in five zero minutes to an hour, depending on traffic, each way, commuting to my entry-level big corporate job, where at the time I was making 67000 which for a job fresh out of school was pretty good, but... Me and my mom would carpool sometimes because I lived at home at this point and her office was 10 minutes away from me. And I remember walking into this massive glass building every morning, strapped like a mule with my laptop bag, my water bottle, my adult lunchbox, walking to my gray cubicle in this building that had fluorescent white lighting. My hands are jittering from probably my second coffee at this point just so that I could stay awake. And I remember looking around this office and all these people looked like they had the life sucked out of them, like shallow eyes, just chugging coffee and it's depressing as fuck. And I remember sitting there one day thinking like, is this it? I worked so hard to get that job, networked with the right people, interviewed round after round. Like I felt so proud after I finally got that job. And then when I when I was there, when I did it, sitting around looking at my coworkers who had kids my age, thinking, how the hell did they do this for 30 years? Like, how? 
How did they not get bored and hate their lives? I got back in the car that day, I remember mentally preparing for that one hour drive home in bumper to bumper traffic. And me and my mom happened to be commuting that day. And I sat there and I asked her, like, how did you do this for 30 years? She did exactly that. Why did you do it? And she said she took it day by day. It was a routine for her. Like, she didn't have the income to send me to dance classes and art and pay for guitar lessons. So she did it because she had to. Because my dad's job wasn't enough to carry the household. And he's a software engineer. I don't think I ever mentioned what my parents do, but they're, they're both software engineers. So she worked because she had no choice. And it didn't seem depressing for her because it was her life. And that income gave her ability to raise her kids, to go on vacation, to pay for things. So I reflect on that sometimes. And I think about how like this is supposed to be the American dream, right? Go to university, get a good job, buy a car, buy a house, have kids, buy a nicer car, buy a nicer house, get a better job to actually afford nicer things. It's this perpetual loop. Like it doesn't stop. And I keep thinking, is this it? Like, is this what life is about? So at the time that I was having all these realizations and existential thoughts, this was around the time that Instagram stories first came out and people started posting where they were at any given moment. So here I am in my gray cubicle with fluorescent white lighting, seeing people in the Amalfi Coast or influencers in the Maldives and trying to live vicariously through their perfectly, perfectly curated highlight reels. And right around this time, I started to, to see people becoming digital nomads. And I think this was the first movement of, of expats, people who left their home country to become travel bloggers and people who started living and working abroad. And that appealed to me for a little bit. I mean, I definitely strived for that. I thought about it. I idealized it. And, you know, like, who, who doesn't want to live in Bali? But the more I thought about it, the more I realized I'd have to say goodbye to my, all my friends, all my family. I'd have to start a new life leave everybody behind and essentially escape the life that I'd spent time building here. And I thought about it. I, I didn't really want to escape, right? I just wanted to make my life better. So that sent me down this whole rabbit hole. And then I came across the FIRE movement, which is Financial Independence Retiring Early. That's what it stands for. But it's a community of people that want to retire as early as possible. It's a community of financially driven young people. And they call it FIRE. Ultimately, the movement focuses on being financially independent or retiring as early as possible in life. Usually, people want to do this in their 30s and their 40s. They do it so that they can retire from traditional employment and pursue other stuff, other interests, hobbies, entrepreneurship, ventures, whatever it is. So the misconception with this whole movement is that people think that it requires being extremely frugal and being an expert investor and saving every penny. But it, it does require a lot of discipline. So you're making you're making trade-offs early on so that you can be work optional later and so that you can live off your investments instead of living paycheck to paycheck. But it doesn't necessarily require being as frugal as you think. And there's different types of fire that I'll talk about. Some people also don't necessarily want to fully retire. Some people might shoot for an early retirement, full stop. But the idea of being work optional is a lot more achievable. And personally, that's more of what I'm after. I don't know if you guys remember, but I had this stint where I gave myself a couple months off between jobs recently. 
And I loved that space. I loved that time to be able to spend each day as I wanted. It was it was the best. Honestly, like I would sit outside every day. I'd drink my coffee on my porch uninterrupted. I'd go to the beach. I'd scooter around the city. I'd do Pilates midday. I fully embraced my housewife sans kids era. But then I got bored real quick. And I'm lucky, like I still have a lot of things going on, right? I have two businesses. I have a podcast. I have my public speaking gigs. I actually had a moment where I realized why all that stuff is so important to me. I, I did a corporate talk at LinkedIn around this time, speaking to their women in business IRG. And it it made me reconnect with my purpose. So as much as I want to be work optional, my purpose is to be useful to my community. It's to build up other women, to teach them how to achieve financial freedom. So I don't think I'm ever going to fully stop working. Actually, I have this quote on my vision board. I'm looking at it. But the purpose of life is not to be happy. It's to be useful to be honorable, to be compassionate, to have it make some difference that you've lived and lived well. Pretty much sums up how I feel about work. So my goal is to achieve fire by 40 with stock market investing and with real estate, which I'll talk about a little later. With my stock market portfolio, I want to build a portfolio of at least a million dollars by that time by 40 so that I can switch from active investing to passive investing and so that some of my positions are paying me dividends and I get to live off of those dividends. Why I set the goal of a million dollars? You know what? I don't know. It's just a nice, easy round number. It's easy to visualize, easy to strive for. In some cases, people want to do this before 30, but let's be real, your 20s are like your funnest years. And if you're squeezing yourself, it's really tough. And you might miss out on some of those amazing experiences. So that's why I set 40 as, as a realistic goal. Because that allows me to live well. I'm not out here trying to survive off ramen. Like oysters taste too good. So I'm out here trying to live a full life. But I also want to retire and be work optional by 40. And to do that, I'm trying to balance three main variables. How much money I'm bringing in. My spending. And my investing. And I'll break down all of these. But... Those are pretty much the three main elements of FIRE. Most people in the FIRE community are trying to cut their investing or saving rate, but realistically it's investing. They're not putting that money into a, a savings account. They're actively making their money work for them in the market. So they want to bring their investing rate to 50% of their income, meaning they invest half of what they make, which is a fuck ton if I'm being honest, Like especially if you're not making more than six figures. So if we're looking at a traditional budget, and I've talked about the 50-30-20 rule before, that suggests that 50% of your income goes towards your needs, like housing, 30% goes towards wants, shopping, food, like going out, things that you don't necessarily need to survive, and then 20% should go towards investing. So based on that trajectory, last year when I did my my uh, Spotify wrapped for my expenses and my income, I realized that I invested 21% of my income, which is not enough for fire. So I'll explain what the next five to 10 years is going to look like for me. But I did buy a property in 2021 and I spent over 200K on renovations in the last two years. So a lot of my free cash went towards that. I also have a wedding that I'm saving for. So I've been putting money aside for that as well. So that 21% of my income that I invested 
can, that number can definitely be a lot higher. And that's something that I'm working towards this year. But despite all that, despite having to put together a down payment, spend money on renos, save for my wedding, since graduating and working full-time, I've been able to build an investment portfolio over 100K. And I want to preface before I get into more numbers, I'm, I'm not sharing any of this to be boastful. I'm sharing this to show you what's possible because if you don't have an image of what a non-traditional life looks like and the route and the path to it, you're not going to know how to build it. So that's what my goal is here, is to show you the roadmap. And if you want, you can implement pieces or parts of that into your life plan as well. So keep in mind, I'm I'm nowhere near where I want to be. I'm sharing this journey with you. I'm getting real vulnerable. And I'm both a map maker and an adventurer at the same time. Like I'm on this journey right alongside with you. Keeping that in mind, here's some homework for you. Those are the numbers that I share with you, right? 40 and a million. I want you to think about what if fire is something that tickles your fancy. I want you to figure out how much money is going to be enough for you. So a million with 10% interest is 100K a year. That's 100K after tax for me personally. So I'll explain that in a little bit more detail as well. But 100K for me is enough to maintain the same lifestyle that I have now. It's enough for me to travel without restrictions. It's enough for me to eat out and pretty much live the same life I have now, but not have to maintain a constant flow of income into my account and to not be stressed about consistently bringing money in. So if you want to live luxuriously and eat caviar on a weekly basis, you're probably going to need more than 100K. So picture what kind of lifestyle you want and then we'll work backwards together. And I want you to know that whatever lifestyle you've imagined, whatever that image looks like for you, it's fully possible. You just got to understand how to unlock the mindset and the discipline to get there. And then we'll, we'll build a plan together so you understand how to get there. So whatever that number is, write it down. That's your big goal. And we're going to talk numbers. So in the, in the FIRE community, there's different types of FIRE financial independence, retiring early, there's lean fire and there's fat fire. Remember I said some people save 50% or invest 50% of their income? That's considered lean fire, which requires a lot of sacrifice. So for some people, that looks like sacrificing a lot of comforts in life, like living with their parents for as long as possible. If you have that ability, if you're in that situation where your parents are, are willing to let you live at home and can support you, if you are able to avoid having children. That's another sacrifice that you have to take. And then you're also making big sacrifices with your social life because your lifestyle is going to be a little bit different from somebody that's not pursuing those same goals. And the the singular goal is to get to a point where you can support the bare necessities of living as fast as possible. So this version of fire is probably the most off-putting to me personally. Like, I'm not down to eat ramen. And some of these Reddit threads that I'm on, these communities talk about how their annual expense goal for the year is to spend no more than $20,000 per person per year, which is peanuts. So lean fire is really, really tough to achieve. You have to be incredibly disciplined and you're making a lot of sacrifices. So lean fire, you're trying to live off of $20,000 a year once you actually get to fire and you're making a lot of sacrifices. Traditional fire, you want to have forty to 50000 roughly per year. Fat fire is not necessarily going to be accessible for everyone. 
It's going to be way easier if you're a high income earner, if you're making at least six figures. If you're a teacher whose income potential, for example, is tapped out after 10 years of working and you want to achieve fire, then maybe you look at ways to build additional income and maybe you find different income streams beyond your nine to five. The thing with all this is money is a very personal thing and it's tough to talk about sometimes. Not everybody's experience with it is going to be the same. So I don't want you listening to this thinking, man, I'm so behind or to get discouraged. But I do need you to be realistic. So if you're in a a position where your income is going to be tapped out at a certain point, fat fire may not be an option for you. Or you may need to be extra disciplined with your budgeting in order to get there. Fat fire was not something that was accessible to me when I first started working. I mentioned my first job where I was making 67000 I did that for a year and then I realized that wasn't for me. And I started applying to other jobs. I was working as a systems and process analyst. It was a very, very technical job that had I not left, I probably would have been in that same pay bracket for a good number of years, which would have drastically, drastically changed the trajectory of my life. So if you stay at the same job year over year, your pay increase is 3 to 5% on average. If you move around at least every two years and you're leveling up your skill set, you're changing careers entirely potentially like I did, you can increase that salary increase 20%, 30%, even 100%. There's no limit. So what I did after that first job is I got a job in tech sales selling advertising space online to companies that wanted to hire people. And I don't think I've ever shared too many details about this. So I want to break down that it was a job that had a commission and a bonus element to it. And a significant portion of my income was actually based on how much revenue I could close for the business. And it was in tech, right? Tech is a very risky industry, especially if you've been reading the news recently and you've seen how many companies are using this economic climate, we'll call it as an excuse to lay off employees. So tech is pretty volatile right now, but as much as you're interviewing at a company, it's your job to also do due diligence and interview a company back. And the reason why I personally love tech is because tech salaries are typically substantially higher than traditional corporate jobs because the cost of goods sold for tech companies is very low. If we're looking at SaaS, which is software as a service, those types of companies or the companies that sell SaaS typically don't have inventory costs. Their only big expense as a company is their employees' salaries and then servers that they use to run their tech. So they're pretty much selling air, right? They're selling a product that doesn't physically exist. It exists because it solves a problem virtually for somebody. So anyways, when I was working in ad tech sales, when I was selling advertising, it's not what I went to school to study, and I have a whole episode on how somebody can get into this job if if you're curious. But that first year in the role, I had my first six-figure year, and it was a 63% increase over from my last job. Had I stayed at that original job, I might have gotten a 2-3% increase and maybe a small company bonus, maybe 10% at the end of the year. And over three years in that role, and I changed roles a couple of times throughout, but three years at that company, I was able to increase that another 104% from my first six-figure year. And the reason why my compensation grew like that is because I was driving millions of dollars worth of revenue for the business. 
about $2 million a year to be exact. Sales is great, but it is not for everybody. It's a grind. It requires a certain personality, a certain level of tenacity and drive to consistently close business. The highs in sales are really high, but the lows are really low. If you're not hitting your quota, you feel like a failure, you feel like you're living off of significantly less than what you were before. So sales is not for everybody. You need to be able to handle that uncertainty and it takes a certain type of person. So I was in a very unique position. Most people don't have the option of increasing their salary like that year over year, but you can move around every two years. Or if this motivates you, you can look for a job where you're responsible for your financial outcomes. I'd personally rather rely on myself for income and be paid for my contribution to a business than be paid a yearly corporate bonus based off of how well the company I work at does. The lesson here, guys, is moving jobs, increasing my salary year after year. That's what allowed me to qualify for a larger mortgage. That's what allowed me to buy a house at 25. That's what allowed me to save for a down payment and set this foundation. So if you have the option to move jobs, don't become stagnant. Try to look for that opportunity and really focus on increasing your income as much as you can and tapping out your income potential while you're young. Because that's what's going to help get you to fat fire or to lean fire, whatever version of fire might make sense for you. And if you're thinking about it, if you're like, yeah, you know what? I want to be work optional too. That sounds like a pretty cool idea. Here's how you'd actually calculate and figure out what your fire number looks like. So the rule of thumb is your portfolio should be 25x or 25 times your annual expense target. So if you want to be able to spend $40,000 a year times 25, so that's a million. The goal is to invest so that you reach that million dollar mark as soon as possible. And have some episodes on real estate and whether or not it makes sense to buy or rent in certain areas. Definitely go back and listen to that one. A lot of people are conditioned into thinking that in order to be successful, they have to buy real estate. It's not necessarily something that's going to make sense for everybody. It's something that I love. I love real estate as an asset class. But if you wanted to achieve fire, maybe you focus more on significantly investing in the stock market because that's more accessible and easier to get into. And you focus on building your portfolio to be as large as possible. And then you retire early based off of that. So going back to that 25 rule, that's based on research showing that it's safe, air quotes, to withdraw your portfolio at a rate of 4%. So you don't want to withdraw more than 4% of your portfolio's value. And when I said fat fire, I don't know if you guys remember, but I said I wanted $100,000 a year to spend. So I wanted a million dollars by 40, but those numbers technically don't add up based on this rule. The reason why is because for me personally, a big part of my financial independence journey is investing in real estate. So 40K is what I would be safely taking out of my investment portfolio, my stock market portfolio, assuming that's 4% of my portfolio. And then the other 60K is being brought in through cash flowing properties. And that's something that I'll explain in detail. But at first, let me backtrack and explain to you guys how I'm actually going to build that million dollar portfolio outside of real estate. So in the stock market, I have 13 years, I'm 27 right now. And what I'm focusing on is aggressively investing letting compound interest do its work as well, but aggressively investing for the next 13 years. And this year is going to be a little bit harder than other years. I'm going to end up investing a little bit less than in other years because I do have a wedding that I need to pay for, which I don't want to spend more than 50K on, but I do still want to make sure that I'm setting aside money for that. Knowing that 
this year I'm saving while concurrently investing. I still want to make sure that I'm keeping my investment rate at 25% of my income. So I'm trying to increase it from the 21% it was last year, with the goal being to increase it to 30% for the next 12 years. So saving and setting aside 30% of my income for the next 12 years, that's going to get me to the million dollar mark. And then assuming 8% interest, I'll need to contribute a minimum of 42k per year or 3500 every month to my investing account. And the goal is also to keep growing my income so that I can hit this number faster. So if I grow my income and I keep my expenses at the same level, I can actually be more aggressive with that amount that I invest over time. And then maybe I can shave a couple years off of that timeline. So maybe I hit that million dollar mark by 38 instead, which would be awesome. That's the stock market side of things. It's figuring out what your end goal is and then working backwards to try to understand how much you need to contribute every month to get there. And I'll link a compound interest calculator in the show notes so you can figure out how much money you have in your portfolio right now. And then assuming whatever interest rate you want, typically 8% is a good number to go for because that's what average S&P 500 returns have looked like over the last 50 years. Then you, you can try to figure out how much you need to contribute every month or every year to your accounts in order to hit your number. So that's the stock market. Let's put that aside. And now let's talk about real estate. I mentioned I bought my first property at 25. That was about two years ago. It started saving aggressively to be able to afford it. And I actually had my grandpa generously give me a small loan with no interest. So I was in a very privileged position to be able to have that support. And side note, thing that I really don't get is why so many people talk down about getting like family support yet they're striving to do the same thing for their kids it's kind of hypocritical I think it's awesome to be able to be in a position where you can give back and help your kids out and one of the goals for me in becoming financially independent is so that I can build a foundation where I can give back and do the same for my kids so yeah that's my little tidbit on privilege but I'm done ranting I want to explain how we got into real estate, and I say we because I'm not in the game alone, although a lot more single women own real estate now than single men do. I don't know if you saw that stat, but it made me so happy. Anyways, back to Alex. He he started working when he was 16, and he managed to save about 100 k by the time he was 21, which is huge, and he rarely spends money on himself. He's very frugal. Probably the only thing that he spends money on is food. If you guys know Alex, you know he loves his snacks. So outside that, he also put himself through university. We both went to a commuter school and he didn't have any student debt when he graduated. But what he did with that 100K was he bought a pre-construction condo, meaning condo that wasn't built yet. And his parents were actually the ones who put the original mortgage under their name. Again, also very privileged position to be able to do that. But Alex did put up the down payment entirely on his own. So I'm never going to claim that we're self-built or self-made because we got help. It wasn't direct in the, like, here, let me give you a couple hundred thousand dollars for a down payment sense, although nothing's wrong with that. And it's amazing if if somebody's able to help you out with that. But the support that we got was the, here, let me, let me risk my credit score and co-sign a mortgage for you. Or... On my end, in my grandpa's sense, it was here, let me give you a loan that you don't have to pay back for six months and I won't charge you any interest. So after university, Alex and I, we'd been together for five years at this point. He asked me to move in with him. 
And in 2017, we moved in together into this condo that was newly built. We lived there for four years. So while we were living there, it was in a pretty desirable area. So it appreciated, meaning it grew in value pretty significantly. And man, I, I wish we kept it honestly to this day because we had to sell it at a not so opportune time in order to be able to buy the house that we live in now. And that was actually our first investment property together. So outside of the, the money that I borrowed from my grandpa, I had about $130,000 that I'd saved for renovation costs. So we used that to buy a fixer-upper with massively slanted floors. And we renovated the whole house and turned it into a triplex, meaning we created three separate units that we could rent. And we still live in one of them today. So this whole concept, for anyone that's not familiar with it, or anyone's mind is blown, it's called house hacking. It's pretty popular. I've talked about this journey quite a bit. I have some episodes on it as well from earlier seasons you guys can go listen to where I talk about how we went through this whole process. I never got into the costs specifically until now, and I'm changing my mindset on that. I want to be more transparent with you guys. But bottom line, we took a massive risk when we were buying this place, but we did it because we we knew that we were building for the future and we were going after a cash flow strategy. So with real estate, you can either go for appreciation where you're hoping that the place you buy appreciates or increases in value over time, which real estate typically does. But the other strategy is to go for a cash flowing strategy. So what we did after we finished our rentals, after all of our units were rented, we went back to the bank. So we got a mortgage from the bank in order to afford the place. So we went back to the bank and we said, look, here's how much we bought the house for. Here's how much we put in for rentals. Here's how much we're making every month from renting out the three units. This is what we think the house would be valued at now. You don't necessarily need to do that last part where you try to figure out the valuation. The bank is going to do that for you. But because we're pretty financially savvy people, we figured out those numbers, built calculations, and sent them to the to the bank when they were figuring out how much we would get approved for for a home equity line of credit. So in a nutshell, what I just explained, that's called the Burr strategy in real estate, where you buy something, you renovate it, you rent it out, you go back to the bank, you refinance the property. And then the most important part here is that you repeat the process. But there's there's actually two ways that you can refinance. So you can do cash out refinancing or you can get a home equity loan. So in our case, we knew that we wanted to buy something again, but we didn't know what exactly yet. And we didn't know if it was going to be in Canada or the US. So we opted to get a HELOC where you're not necessarily, you've got the option to draw that debt. You're not getting like a lump sum of cash. Cash out refinancing is not as typical for a bank to do. You're adding debt to your mortgage, ideally at a lower interest rate, but not always. And then you get a lump sum that you can use towards something else. The bank gives you a check essentially. And then you use that money, whether it's in the HELOC or in the check, you use that to buy another property. We went for the HELOC route instead of getting cash in exchange for the equity that we built. We got a separate loan with a separate interest rate and a new payment date. And what I want to talk about a little bit here is the repeat part of the Burr strategy. Buy, renovate, rent, refinance, repeat. A lot of the finance gurus that I interact with in you know the personal finance communities, they all talk about investing slow. Buying index funds, buying ETFs, letting compound interest do its thing, which I think is awesome. 
because real estate's not a strategy that's for everybody, but it's an awesome tool, especially if you wanted to become financially free faster. Real estate is the path that I'm using to get to that. And building a real estate portfolio, you can approach it in two ways. You can do it the fast way or you can do it the slow way. In the slow way, you're buying a house every couple years and you're growing your portfolio linearly by adding assets gradually. So you're buying a house, then you're buying a house in a couple years, then you're buying another house in a couple years, then you're buying another house in a couple years. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's an awesome strategy. It's just a little bit slower than what I'm trying to do. So I'm trying to get to that fire number by 40. The fast way to do it, or the short-term strategy, is called the stack. And what this what this means is you're trying to stack as many places as possible. You're trying to grow your real estate portfolio exponentially instead of linearly. So the first place that you buy is going to take a ton of work. You're not going to get to financial independence right away, but you're going to learn a fuck ton. And when I first did it, I learned I learned a ton as well. It was five months of rhinos. I learned so much about carpentry, about plumbing, about electrical. That knowledge and that experience is priceless, but you don't necessarily need to take the process slowly. You don't need to skip a couple years, buy another property in a year. You can do it exponentially. This is a lot easier said than done, right? Like it's easier to talk about this, but when it comes to actually taking action, it's going to be a lot more difficult. What I'm planning on doing is using the Burr method, taking the equity that I built and keep using that same equity to build my real estate portfolio. So not putting in any more cash, putting cash into the stock market, but using that equity to keep building the portfolio. Instead of waiting years between places, it's rinsing and repeating that process over and over again. So why stop at one house when you can buy a duplex or a multifamily home? And then after you do that a couple times and build more equity, why why not buy a small apartment building? Why not build that unit count from four to 16 to 32? Each year you're adding expertise. Each year you're adding people to your network. You're dialing in your systems. You're meeting new professionals like mortgage brokers. You're meeting private lenders. You're meeting accountants, tradespeople. You're adding all these people to your network and you're finding creative ways to make financing those properties simpler. The first place that you get is probably going to be with a traditional bank and you get a traditional mortgage with you know, your typical A or B lender. The next two, you can also do with a traditional lender. But then after that, the plan is to go the private lending route because you close on properties a lot quicker and it makes stacking properties a lot easier. You do have to keep in mind that that interest is going to be higher. There's more risk to the lender at that point. The goal here with this whole strategy is to build a portfolio that after all expenses are paid, can generate $10,000 a month in cash flow, which is about $120,000 a year amongst two people. So that's exactly where that $60,000 is coming from that I was talking about earlier. And to, to help you guys visualize how this works so you can work backwards, it sounds crazy, but if you have a portfolio of 63 units and you build that up within 12 years, each unit making $150 in profit, every month after all expenses, that's where that $10,000 comes in. And that 63 units over 12 years just means that you would need to acquire five, 5.25. So let's say six units a year. So you can buy three duplexes or two triplexes or one small multifamily building every year. 
And again, you're not using your own money. You're using the equity that you pull out from that initial transaction. You can bring on partners. You don't have to do this alone. And as you're going through the strategy, you're meeting people, you're meeting professionals, you're adding them to your network, and it makes this process a lot easier. And that's also just the cash flow part of this. Real estate is awesome in the sense that we haven't even factored in appreciation. And if we're taking like a conservative approach, maybe you get 2% appreciation on all those properties. And that's a pretty significant amount of equity across a pretty big portfolio at that point. So if you ever need cash for any reason, if you needed to do renos or something happens and you needed to take money out of that portfolio, you could always sell something to slim that portfolio down. It is an option. So I know this sounds crazy, right? But I'm not like jumping into buying 100 units for my first deal. Obviously, I'm planning to scale it bit by bit, but I am trying to do it exponentially. And another thing that you might be thinking about is, okay, managing all those units is going to be a massive headache. True. But you can always hire a property manager who is going to take a cut. But the goal here is to build passive income, not to be a full-time landlord. So it's something to think about. But that's that's pretty much the plan, guys. That's the blueprint for how to retire, how to be work optional by 40. And not necessarily by 40. That's That's my goal. But I want you to think about what your goal is. And I want you to understand that it's possible. Bottom line here is I'm keeping my full-time job. That's what's allowing me to invest and diversify my investing by letting me invest in the stock market and build my real estate portfolio. And frankly, that's what's going to help me qualify for the next two mortgages that I need in order to keep building my portfolio. So it seems like a lofty goal. I know it seems crazy, but I'm not doing it all at once. I'm breaking it down. I'm adding three more units to my portfolio by the end of the year. And then ideally six units the year after that. In the stock market, I'm investing $3,500 every month. And then that's going to add up to over $40,000 invested next year. A lot of people dream about retiring early, but they don't know how to actually make it a reality. And the key is if you educate yourself and you invest wisely and you start as early as possible, you're going to get there too. So I hope this helped you learn how you can be financially independent and retire early. Hope you learned a little bit about the FIRE movement. You learned a little bit about my story and where I'm headed next. And if this episode resonated with you, please leave me a review on Spotify, on Apple Music, share it with somebody that maybe you think will find it interesting as well. And if you are a sponsor, we are currently looking for sponsors on the Miss Independent podcast. Feel free to send me an email at media at misfindependent.com and we will get back to you. Thank you so much for listening, guys. Have an amazing day. Ciao for now.